Hi, I'm Chris Wright, and welcome to this week's edition of Right on the Nail. On today's News Roundtable episode, I'm joined by three very important luminaries, former political editor of the Sunday Mirror, Nigel Nelson, co-founder of Momentum and former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn, James Schneider, and once again, Professor of European Politics and Jean Monnet, Chair of U European Integration at the University of Ireland, Maynooth, John O'Brennan. What an illustrious lineup we have for you today. Let's get cracking because it has been one hell of a week. I actually went to Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday, and it was all pretty quiet that day. Not much of great note happening until later that afternoon, and then it all kicked off. Jenrick, the immigration minister, resigned. Suella Braverman made a speech to the House, and suddenly we're back in Tory wars all over again, and once again over the subject of immigration. John, when will the Tory party stop this war? This war's been going on for so long now, and every time they get peace, War breaks out within a matter of months. Do they not understand how damaging it is to them? Well, I think we're almost in the post-conservative government phase, but nobody has told the Conservative Party that this isn't a political party. It is a rabble masquerading as a government that is consumed with its own internal rows, and these have taken different shape in different years dominated by the personal ambitions of its leading lights. And in my view, Chris, it has effectively given up governing. What it's doing is, almost on a daily basis, performative politics. The Rwanda scheme, for example, um, has been revealed already to have cost the UK £300 million to send a handful of people to a dictatorship in Africa to demonstrate to the uh, Tory heartland more than anything else that they're doing something about the migration problem. And if you're to view the issue as a problem, I don't, but let's say for argument that one does, this is a party that has presided over the trebling of migration since Brexit. So it just seems extraordinary to people outside of Britain, how much the Conservative Party has lost touch with reality, how it refuses to engage us with the real challenges that modern-day Britain faces. I was struck the other day when Martin Wolf, the venerable Financial Times commentator, wrote a really great piece about the productivity problem. Britain's productivity problem has been completely ignored under this Conservative government over 13 years. So there's a whole range of things which constitute the real policy channels, and they keep being ignored in favour of this melodrama. The actors sort of change now and again, but the substance of it doesn't. It is about the internecine civil war that has engulfed this party and unfortunately has brought catastrophic damage to the United Kingdom. Nigel, is, is Rishi Sunak still in charge? Or is, I mean, are the letters going in to Graham Brady? Is there going to be a leadership challenge? And what, what's ultimately going to happen here? Well, I mean, the, the, uh, I think the Tories are, uh, are well aware that they've had uh, four prime ministers in as many years. And it really would be uh, stupid to have a fifth 
just on the eve of a general election. So I think what we're seeing here is actually a, a battle for the uh, heart and soul of the Conservative Party. So you've got, you've got, as John just mentioned, various factions uh, fighting it out. The One Nation group, who are, the, who are the moderates, there versus the New Conservatives, Common Sense group, European Research group on the right. As to what is going on, uh, yes, there are letters going in. There are letters of no confidence uh, going in on on uh, Rishi Sunak. Uh, we know that Andrea Jenkins has certainly um, sent one in because she, she's actually showed it to everybody. The question is how many of those, and Graham Brady, the uh, chair of the 22 committee, always keeps that absolutely secret. I heard estimates yesterday that range from eight letters going in to 30 letters going in. You need 53 to have a no confidence vote. My guess is that it'll never get to the 53 and there won't be a vote. And if it does, Rishi Sunak would would win it, simply because the Tories should be having this argument in opposition, not while they're in government and certainly not while we're on the eve of an election. So what you're both saying, both, both John and Nigel, are, are saying that this is actually not the government, it's the Tory party after they've lost the next election, deliberating amongst themselves as to who's responsible for why they lost and what they're going to do about it for the election five years later. But James, that does mean that the country at this point in time is being governed by a government which isn't really a government. Well, we've had the misfortune of this government in its different permutations for the last 13 years. And I uh, I challenge anybody to find a 13-year period in British history where we have been worse ruled, uh, worse governed. And I I mean, it's, it's hard to disagree with a word of what Nigel and John said. This is a government that is falling apart. It's been in a state of falling apart and patching itself back up again now for some time. And there are, you know, there are deeper reasons for that. We're coming to the end, or we've come to the end of a cycle of, uh, of political economic management in the global north, which we've had since, let's say, the late 70s. And that's causing a fundamental crisis within, uh, within the ruling order. And within the Conservative Party, you can see how that's been splitting along three tendencies now for several years. The one tendency, which is sort of like the Cameron Osborne and also like the Sunak tendency, is don't worry, carry on. We can keep everything sort of the same and it will be okay. There's the, the system is broken, you know, neoliberalism is broken, but let's turbocharge it. Let's take it even further. So beforehand, that was the kind of Liam Fox style, um, Brexiteers. Then that was the Liz Truss style. And now that's being taken up with the uh, even sort of further hard right Suella Braverman type stuff. And then there's the, the, the tendency which suggest that, that can see that the world is changing and that the Conservative Party has to be part of leading that change. And that was what the, the more effective aspects of May and Johnson, when they could manage to do those things, were. They could see that things were changing and they wanted to lead that change. With May, she was talking about burning injustices. With Boris Johnson, he was talking about levelling up. But those things have gone completely out the window as they, as it becomes more and more obvious that they're not going to be in power very long. And therefore, I think quite a lot of 
um, the sort of the ruling order in Britain is 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 handing the reins over to to Labour already. It's preparing for an incoming Starmer government and watching the Tory psychodrama, you know, carry on as if it's a bit of a sideshow. I mean, it's not a sideshow because they are still in government and real people's lives are are impacted. But politically, it, it, it looks so weird and out of touch because it basically is weird and out of touch. They're having a, they're having a row among themselves. Yeah. Uh, Nigel, is it because they're lacking a leader who is so charismatic that he can basically control the whole party and they're all going to fall into line regardless of where they sit in, in terms of all the different policies, especially on immigration? I think that, that that we haven't got a strong leader in Rishi Sunak. That's been demonstrated. And a lot of what he's doing at the moment is because people like Suella Braverman actually uh, accuse him of weakness. It obviously hurts him. And that's why he tries to act tough in the oddest circumstances. So um, uh, the the row over the Elgin marbles and snubbing the Greek prime minister was a strange row to to pick. Um, just weird. Uh, the same thing applies, I think, to Rwanda. It should have been ditched long ago. Well, it should never have been thought up, but it should have been ditched long ago as unworkable. So what you've got in Rishi Sunak, I think, is you've got um, a technician rather than a politician. What Rishi Sunak is really bad at is politics. He just is, he just cannot cannot to understand it. Now, the, the, whether you get a, a, a stronger leader would actually make any difference. I don't know. I think that what's happened to the Tory Party broadly can be dated from Brexit. That's not an observation about whether Brexit was right or wrong. Mm. It was the point yeah. where the Tory party began to really fall apart. So uh, it happened under Theresa May, who they got rid of. Uh, they ended up getting Boris Johnson. There were an awful lot of MPs who thought that was an extraordinary thing to, to do. Then we had an even worse prime minister in Liz Truss. So um, that, that's where we've ended up. And that's why the Tory party would be better off in opposition so they can decide exactly what they want to be but don't try and do that while you're in government no so meanwhile the country's suffering and and john the rwanda plan they're staking an awful lot on this i know if you speak to conservative mps they are totally fixated on R rwanda and illegal immigration and i want to talk about legal immigration in a minute but they're fixated on that and it, they really believe that if they can get rwanda through they're going to suddenly be soaring in the polls but are they? It's completely mystifying to me, Chris. If you look at the recent, the most recent opinion polling by the Office for National Statistics, it shows that emigration doesn't come first or second or third or fourth or even fifth in people's concerns. Their concerns are about the cost of living. They're about the NHS. They're about crime and they're about the economy principally. So if that Conservative MP bothered to look at the ONS data and track it over time, he would see that he's entirely wrong. Um, if you look at the uh, small boats issue, this constitutes a very, very small part of the problem, if you believe this is a problem, which I don't, by the way. But if you do, the data shows that net migration into Britain up to June 23 was 672,000. 
The small boats arrivals constituted a tiny proportion of that. So the notion that you devote so much energy and you fixate on and obsess about a policy that is not going to solve the problem in any substantial way, it just seems to me to be completely bizarre. And all of the kind of uh, polling that's been done um, suggests that that is the case. But when you get people who are completely psychologically obsessed, they really don't live on the same planet to the rest of us. And that, I think, is what is in evidence here. Um, and the, the, the broader issue... I well, well, who's obsessed? Is it the pub? You're saying the public aren't obsessed about, by the 30,000 coming in on the boats. And meanwhile, the 672,000 have come in through the front door and we're worried about 30,000 coming in through the back door. So why? And of those 672,000, you've got to line that up against the uh, very real and patent needs of the British economy. Uh, I mean, if you look at the health and social sector, for example, there are 264,000 vacancies there. The other thing which the British government has just announced, the increase in thresholds uh, for foreign workers when they come in to work to £38,000, it seems again to be a completely needless own goal. Many of the very people who are reflected in those 264,000 vacancies will not now be able to come to Britain to work as nurses, to work with Uh, older people in social care and alleviate some of the pressure on those circuits. In Ireland, for example, we have thresholds, Chris, for these sectors, and we have exactly the same pressures. We have a lot of shortages because we have full employment. But in contrast, the threshold is set at about €27,000. So that's equivalent to what about... Um, 24,000 £24, £24, pounds. So it means that you can actually recruit very widely in those areas where it's necessary. So amongst other things, what the British government has done this week is to gift Ireland the possibility of all of these workers being displaced from the UK to Ireland and helping yeah. solve us, help us solve the problems that we've got in these areas. Yeah, I mean, the, the economy needs needs people to work. We, we've got job shortages, especially dealing with old people in care homes and in hospitals. And I know because I've been in hospitals quite, quite a bit recently. I've seen the people that work there. You say 264,000 vacancies. I know a lot of areas where the economy is short of people. The government have this policy of, of saying the more we put the figure up that you've got to earn to come here, then it's going to solve the problem. But actually, there are British workers that are happy to do the job for 35, 38,000 a year that don't want to do it for 25,000 a year. Meanwhile, immigrant labour will do it for 25,000 a year. So are you doing the economy a favour by saying everybody's got to be paid 35, 38,000 a year and that way British people will do it? Or are you doing a disservice by trying to set the figure so high. I mean, can the care homes actually afford to pay people uh, that amount of money to work there, even if they can get them? And if they 
and and that's going to be passed on to the to the, the consumer anyway. So, Nigel, I mean, is this a serious own goal that the Conservative Party have have inflicted on the country by putting these numbers up to where they put them up to? Well, I mean, um, first of all, that the the health and uh, the health and uh, social care sector are exempt from that particular number. Um, so the the issue with with health and social care is what they're saying is they can't bring in family members. So that's what, right. It's the family members. Yes. Yeah. So what we're talking about is that that only single um, NHS workers or or care workers can actually come in. Now it will depend really if you can recruit enough based on that. If you can, you kind of solved your problem. That's what James cleverly says. Um, but I mean the the, the the, the real problem with the Tories is that they've turned this whole legal migration thing into a numbers game. And so going back to your earlier questions about what it does to the economy, the Treasury like immigration because economy, the economy grows because of it. Um, what the Treasury won't like terribly is the Tories adopting Labour's proposal, which was to uh, pay... Uh, workers in shortage occupations 20% less. Now that 20% has been abolished. What it means is if, say, uh, you are a builder and you employ predominantly foreign bricklayers, you're facing uh, um, a fifth increase in your wages bill from next year. That will have a knock-on effect on on, uh, the price of the house that you finally build. Same thing applies in other sectors. It'll be more expensive to take your pet to the vet, for instance. That's a shortage. Or, or agriculture and food on the table. Yeah, all those things. I mean, if you if you take that, we we lost because of Brexit. We lost an awful lot of uh, East European workers who came over here on the temporary visas to uh, pick fruit and veg. As a result of that, if you take the figure uh, for food inflation since 2019, it's gone up by 30%. So other factors are involved. But of that 30%, 7% is a direct result of not being able to get cheap labour from abroad. James, what, for, you know, for the, the, the alternative part of the spectrum here on the left wing of the Labour Party, what's your view about foreign workers coming in to do jobs for 27000 a year that could be going to a British worker, although the British worker could still do it, but clearly doesn't want to do it for 27000 a year. Well, I mean, the first thing that I want to say about these, the, the changes in the moving the threshold up into the, into the high 30s is that it's breaking up British families. The fact that people will not be able to bring their, as in British people, will not be able to bring over their spouses and therefore quite possibly their children to live together is a reprehensible uh, breach of a state's basic duties to its citizens to allow them to, to have the quiet enjoyment of, of, uh, of, of family life. And I think, you know, it should be utterly condemned on that basis, um, you know, on that basis alone. To your, you know, to your question about um, migration and, and, and wages, we have for many years now in Britain, and this is part of the productivity issue that, that John mentioned before, systematically under-invested in training and skills for 
the workers in Britain. That I, you know, I remember always when we would go and speak to the Manufacturers Association and other business associations. Um, when I was working for Jeremy Corbyn, when he was leader of the party, and the thing they really wanted to talk to us about was, generally speaking, not taxes and not regulations, but was about skills and training and and uh, and, and that sort of thing. And that costs money. So if you're if you're going to fill the shortages, which we clearly have, you're going to have to reinstate the nurses' bursary. We're going to have to offer people lifelong uh, training and reskilling. And you're going to, you, the, these are the things which are going to have to happen. That all costs money. And it's money that for, uh, for 13 years, the government has been unwilling to, uh, unwilling to spend. Now, if you were to do that, and also, you know, there's another thing that you're going to have to, to spend money on. We have lots of people who are long term out of work because they are, because they are sick. And again, the, the government's response to that is to try to um, scapegoat some of them and try to bring in a, additional assessments. And we saw what happened uh, under the first wave of austerity with people being um, said that they were fit to work and they clearly clearly weren't, clearly severely disabled and so on and so forth. Again, that costs a lot of money to bring those uh, those people back in. So if you're going to have a sensible conversation about levels of employment, Types of workers coming in, where when when we need to pull from abroad, we've got to talk about why are workers in the UK not being provided with the the skills and training uh, that they need, and that aspect of the conversation is never brought up by the Conservatives when they talk about cutting the numbers of migration. They never say, and the way in which we are going to do this is by training more nurses because we're going to bring back the nurses bursary and we're going to increase the pay of nurses rather than fighting a bitter industrial dispute against them to give them another year-on-year real terms pay cut. These are the actual trade-offs that are basically never discussed when we talk about migration policy. The Mm. migration policy for much of the British political media class is an attempt to say, point over there. Those people are the problem. Those people are the reasons why insert problem rather than nearly 13 Mm. years and beyond 13 years of government policy. It's amazing that we are almost castigating the the migrant workers that are coming in to fill our our national health service. You go into a hospital to find a British nurse is, is like as rare as a hen's tooth. And this is something, can I just say one quick thing about that? Yeah. This is also... Not something, you know, we on the progressive side, we we sometimes say, you know, look at the NHS, it's like the United Nations people from all countries. And in some senses, that's, that, you know, that that's positive. But we also think that health workers are being trained in, generally, generally speaking, uh, less well-off, less uh, developed countries than the UK. Those governments are putting large amounts of money to train up doctors and nurses in Nigeria, in the Philippines, and so on. And then they're being taken uh, to fund um, uh, into the British NHS because we are not putting in sufficient funding to train doctors and nurses and health workers uh, here in the UK because it's cheaper to um, uh, to rely on uh, someone else training them, the Nigerian uh, Treasury or the Filipino Treasury, rather than on, on our own. And we, we, we also have here a very high percentage of non-working members of the of the of the community 
and I was going to ask John, does every other country in Europe have the same kind of percentage of, of people that for whatever reason are not part of the, of the uh, workforce? Well, let me just put that issue aside for a moment, Chris. On the issue of immigration, we simply have to face up to the fact that in highly developed societies like ours in Europe, that the big problem we have is the declining birth rate. So all of us are faced with the same problem of critical shortages in all of these areas. We are going to need migrants to do all of these things for many, many years in the future. The other issue that's there in the background is displacement of people due to climate change. My argument is we ain't seen nothing yet. And the only way we yeah. can actually address this issue going forward is to do it collectively. It's what political scientists call a collective action problem. Um, the UK is no different, in my view, to any of the main European Union countries here. We are all going to have to work together. And this is something that we have patently not done over a long period of time. And here, the UK actually isn't an outlier. It isn't different to the rest of the EU. The EU just does not have a functioning migration policy because many of the member states are absolutely opposed to bring to, to any kind of generous immigration policy. Think about Hungary, Poland, at least up to recently, and other countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Everybody recognizes that there's a problem, but nobody in the political class, it seems to me, wants to face up to the issues that are going to dominate politics in the years to come. And one of them is about how we distribute the migrants who clearly want to come to our countries in a way that is proportionate and doesn't cause problems, for example, um, with GP surgeries, waiting times getting longer and longer, with places in schools and creches and so on. The only way we can adequately deal with all of these issues is to do it collectively. But if you look at um, the small boats issue, the UK and France have had a really problematic relationship with this. At times, it seemed to work. There's still a lot of attention all the time. This is just a microcosm, in my view, of the kind of issues we're going to face in the near future. So what we need then uh, is, a is, a, is a politician brave enough to say, look, look, everybody, we've got 264,000 vacancies in the health service. We have an aging population that are living longer. We're producing fewer and fewer young people as ourselves to go into the workforce. Uh, we've got James's suggestion, a very good one, that we have to bring back like nurses, training colleges and bursaries and that kind of thing to train people as much as we, we can ourselves. But hey, everybody, in the meantime, we are going to have to bring in immigrant labor to do these jobs. Otherwise, as a country, it's not going to work. Now, is that what a politician needs to say, Nigel? And is there somebody that's prepared to say that? Uh, well, if there's someone prepared to say it, I haven't found them yet. Um, but yes, broadly, that's exactly what, a, what, what they need to say. They, that it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Uh, we must stop thinking about numbers. It should be about need. It should be uh, the workers that we need for our economy in whichever sector that, uh, that might be. 
And if if you get away from this idea that just the numbers are too high, you, uh, you and you work out where you actually need uh, foreign labour, uh, that would be much better. I think that what seems to have happened is that it's become a symbolic issue rather than a real problem. I tend to agree with, with John on this one. Um, and people are concerned about, about immigration. I think that it's gradually um, going up on the opinion polls. Cost of living is still the highest. NHS comes next. But immigration may well now be third. Um, what is interesting is, uh, again, is it's about how you would distrib- uh, distribute that it seems to me the people who most object to, object to it to migrants are, are areas where there are hardly any migrants in there. Um, yeah, that, that's true. That's always in, been the case in major towns. Yeah, yeah. So meanwhile, whilst all this is going on, uh, the, the government are totally fixated on this Rwanda plan and the thirty thousand people trying to get into the country on the small boats and sending them to to a dictatorship in the, in the middle of Africa, hoping, not that it's going to work, but that it will work as a deterrent, and they'll all say, guess what, we're not going to go to, we're not going to go on a boat to England in case we end up being sent to Rwanda. But is Rwanda vaguely an answer, James? And is what the government are now achieve, uh, attempting to achieve, is it going to work? Will it get through Parliament? And if it gets through Parliament, is it going to be acceptable on the world stage? So it, it depends what you mean by work and what it's designed to do. I mean, clearly, if it's designed to um, make uh, Britain look like a reasonable country on the world stage, well, clearly, it's not designed to do that because it won't do that. Um, and nor will it do anything to deal with our utterly disorganized approach to the real needs of refugees not just in britain but also in the in the eu as as john was saying but the the one thing which it does i mean we have to remember where these the 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 small boats drama came from i i'm not talking about the actual you know uh, dinghies coming across the channel but when did it drive up the political agenda and how did that happen it happened directly after, almost during, the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, which, if you remember those, they were huge and they were supported by the large majority of the British public. And I think this was profoundly alarming to the government and to, to large sections of the government. And there were efforts to perform, as there always are when there are large protest movements, redirection. If the protesters are popular on their main issue, let's talk about something else. So the first thing there was to talk about statues and to pretend that there was some threat to the Winston Churchill statue in Parliament Square, which there was never any threat to. And, you know, the, the government can make news. That's something that the government can do. If the government puts up um, chipboard around Winston Churchill's statue, that's news. And, you know, the, your your average person con- consuming a bit of news passively, they don't think, oh, the government's done that as a stunt. They think, oh, well, there must be a real threat. They're talking about a real threat. You've got both main political parties talking about how people should have 10 years in prison for attacking these statues. That must be a real thing. So that was the first deflection strategy. The second one was the small boats. It was exactly at that time 
that Priti Patel went and, and stood uh, in, in on the coast of Kent and said this was a real problem, created a new work for uh, a, a new task force with a, with a new man, a new handsome man with a new uniform who was going to go and deal with it, start doing RAF flights over, you know, things which are not necessary operationally to deal with uh, the people coming over and the, the risk to their own lives and, and, and so on. But in order to make a show and make a media stand, then you can have Nigel Farage and uh, members of the broadcast media embedded in boat journeys uh, out there to see. And that was the spectacle that we were treated to in August of 2020. And this has been the, the process carrying on. It is a distraction technique uh, that has been used again and again. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't real people that are that are crossing the channel. Of course there are, in relatively small number, and they, they need to be helped, and their claims need to be processed quickly. This is another part of the issue. Due in part to cuts in, within the Home Office, 10 years ago, almost all asylum seeker applications were dealt with within six months. Now, basically zero are. Now, this again is a problem of the government's own making through not performing basically sensible, you know, sensible administrative policy. Ah, we have a backlog. What should we do? We should hire more interpreters and translators and caseworkers so that we can process the cases, see who needs help and who doesn't need help. But rather than doing that, they come up with this fantastical, expensive, cruel, unworkable and bizarre Rwanda plan and all sorts of other, you know, performative cruelties, you know, cruel theatre, like the Bibby Stockholm, for example, you know, which is not a solution to uh, the fact that there is this huge backlog of uh, asylum cases because they aren't being processed with any speed, in part because our capacity to do so has been cut over the last uh, 13 years. Um, but in order to say, to say to some people, look, there are, you, your living standards might be, might be bad, but there are some people who are worse off and we're going to make life even worse. Uh, you know, even worse. That's the only way in which it can function. But you know, happily, I think that the, the, the vast majority of the British people aren't really buying it. You know, they, they might think that because if you're told every day in the media that the small boats crisis is a crisis, they might, yes, think that that's a crisis. But it is not as important as the cost of your mortgage, the cost of your rent, the fact that your pay is not going up and hasn't gone up. You know, pay in this country is at the levels it was in 2005 in real terms. You know, it's almost two decades of, of lost growth, of, of no growth or of, of depression, basically, in living standards for the majority of people. That's the real issue, which regardless of how much cruel theatre and distraction the Tories can't cut across, and that's that's why they what they're doing looks more and more desperate and more and more weird because it can't engage with the real issue. Yeah, maybe the government are fixated on the front page of the Daily Mail and the demographic of of the readers that are probably sixty plus, many of them retired, many of them maybe got their own homes and you know not too worried about some of these things, but. You know, okay, they all vote, and young people probably don't vote to the same extent. But, and again, surely John wasn't Brexit supposed to fix all of these problems? I mean, the 
the Brexit campaign has showed pictures of of not so much necessarily people in boats, but the, you know there was the big ad we're all familiar with. Of, and don't forget the the effect of the Syrian uh, war had on this with the with the migrants leaving, fleeing that country and coming into into Greece and Turkey. And they showed pictures of, and it it was like Brexit was supposed to take us back to an era when we didn't have any immigration and we didn't have any migrants and you know we were all going back to you know warm warm beer and you know cricket on the village green kind of world but actually we can't do that can we we things have moved on we're never going to be that country again because we can't afford to be that country and we need people to come in and nobody's prepared to level up with with the country as a whole and say this is the world we're now living in is that the problem? Yes. Well, of course, everything about Brexit was based on fantasy. And it was this desire to return to this mythical sort of era in the 1950s, where everything was prosperous, and everybody looked the same and sounded the same and weren't constituted as threatening. Now, I agree, there's been a big, big backstory here. And part of it is the toxicity of a Tory media ecosystem, with the Daily Mirror being one of the honourable exceptions, Nidal, over a long period of time, where people have been literally socialised into hating foreigners. That was a big part of the Brexit story, and it hasn't changed. And we should not. We should know uh, that seventy-five percent of the people who end up in England having risked their lives crossing the Channel their claims are adjudicated to be fair and serious and positive claims where they face the genuine threat of violence where they've come from and there is an absolutely genuine and bona fide reason. All of this often gets lost in the maelstrom of discourse that you find around this issue because it's so emotive. But I agree with you, uh, Chris, If we broaden this out to Europe, uh, I mean, 2015 was the key year, not 2020. That that was the year when, because of the Syrian civil war, because of the rise of ISIS, people were leaving in vast numbers. A million people end up in Germany. But all over the continent, there is a really, really big issue now. Emigration is uh, at the forefront and at the center of political debate. We saw what happened in the Netherlands recently, where the far-right party won 37 seats, about 24% of the vote. In Germany, the alternative for Deutschland has done incredibly well in two recent regional elections in the western part of Germany, which is not their heartland, which is in East Germany. In 15 out of the 27 member states of the EU, the far-right is polling at 20% or above. So we have a major, major problem. And our politicians all over the place just don't want to confront it. Mostly, they're seeking to instrumentalize it for their own narrow political gains. And in the longer term, this is going to be completely cancerous, I think, because it's not difficult five years from now to see that Europe will be governed largely by the far right. And who knows what that might look like? or what that will pretend for migrant communities in particular. 
Now, that is quite a thought. And, and, and Nigel, I mean, with what John's saying, with the far-right parties polling at 20%, we've got Reform UK, which, which is the old Brexit party. Uh, they're polling well over 10% now. Uh, Brexit came about and the, uh, in part, and, and the move of the Conservative Party to the right at the same time, as, as they were concerned about the threat of Nigel Farage and the Brexit party. And are they now concerned about Reform UK and are they going to then start moving further to the right so they can try and see off losing votes to Reform UK? Um, I do think that the the election in, in Holland actually really did shake the, the Conservative Party and made the the, uh, the right of the party feel a, a fair bit stronger. When it comes down to reform, uh, you're right, reform is polling about 10%, but remember that UKIP back in 2015 was polling around 15%, and they still didn't get a single MP elected. Now, reform will go the same way. The only fear I think that the Tories have is that uh, you may get reform candidates in marginal seats and, it, uh, and split the vote there and take it away from the, from the Conservative Party. But I don't think they're actually a major threat. And really, we've got to the stage now where I can't find a single Conservative MP who doesn't think the next election is lost anyway. Yeah. I mean, maybe, James, they should uh, they should just throw in the towel before it gets any worse for them, have a general election, put us all out of our misery, put themselves out of their misery, and leave uh, the Labour government with what is a huge problem to deal with anyway. Well, I, I don't think Turkey's vote for Christmas. They want to be in a position where if things suddenly turned around in some dramatic way, that they could have an election. But I think they'll soon act will basically call the election at the last possible moment, you know, for the in the hope that maybe something will change, although it's it's very unlikely to. On the reform Tory um, rise of the hard right, not just in Europe, you know, all over the world, I mean, we basically already have that party. It's called the Conservative Party. It has become the, the hard right party in the same way that the Republicans are the Trump party. And uh, so, and we, it, it, this is the rising force in, in, in global politics. You see it in, in Brazil, in, in Argentina, in the US, in India, in the Philippines, in all across Europe, in country after country. Um, and, you know, that is what, that's what needs to be confronted because it, the trend scenario in Britain is, yes, Labour come in. And to be honest, any of the fundamental issues we've been talking about here, Labour have zero policies. You know, Labour have no policies to deal with productivity, living standards in any dramatic way. They, they don't have policies to fundamentally uh, or really even tinker that much with the basic political economic settlement, which is failing the overwhelming majority of people. So in those circumstances, with the Conservative Party going even further into the hard right, far right kind of area, and people's lives not getting better under, uh, you know, under a Labour government. The trend outcome is pretty, pretty alarming. It's the continued uh, rise and strengthening of the uh, of the hard right. Yes, they're going to collapse in this upcoming election, but then after that, one imagines that they will be in a strong position within the Conservative Party. They're all, you know, they're all currently auditioning to be the leader of the the hard right Conservatives in opposition, and. 
you know, when people's living standards fall and the bulk of the media will be against the Labour government once they're in government. Now they're, they're not going to be, but once they're in government and things are, things are difficult for people, the bulk of the media will, will be against them. Labour have neither the policies nor the, the political strength to resist this charge to the, to, to the hard right. You see the usual pattern for uh, for labor is basically to be dragged by what it does say on the front page of the of the mail um even if they look squeamish about it and that's what we're most likely to see over over the next five years which is which is very alarming for the country yeah you're absolutely right i mean and and it it would appear that labor labor policy right now is not to have any specific policies on the grounds that best say nothing and then we'll get elected but meanwhile, although that might work in terms of getting elected, suddenly they're going to have to come up with an awful lot of policies very quickly to fix a problem which is not fixable within a five-year term anyway. Oh, well, let's move. Let's talk about Boris. We're always, always nice to talk about Boris. There he is turning up for the COVID inquiry with bizarrely a Grimsby Town Football Club bobble hat on. How's the COVID inquiry going, Nigel? And Boris... Boris seems to, in a way, not be doing quite as badly as he might have done compared to some of the others. Yeah, I actually think that's a very good assessment, Chris, that uh, I'm usually the first to bash Boris. And I do think we're unfortunate to be hit with a, um, a national emergency with someone like that as prime minister. But when it comes to the inquiry, we've had an awful lot of uh, politicians and aides blaming each other for what went wrong. Um, we've we've heard an awful lot of bad language that's come out of it. What I think Boris did over the last couple of days is do what the inquiry actually wanted him to do. The whole point of the COVID inquiry is not to bl- is not to apportion blame, is to try and learn lessons and come up with some kind of blueprint to handle another pandemic better than we handled the last. And what Boris Johnson has done, although we lacked a lot of detail, he didn't remember a lot of things, um, generally speaking, he acknowledged the things that he thinks went wrong, um, the tier system being an example. He then talked about uh, lockdowns, whether or not they should have been done earlier. Would that have been better? Would that have saved schools? That's the kind of information the inquiry needs to hear, because if you're going to come up with something to combat something similar in the future, you really do need to know exactly how that decision decision making process worked at the top. Yeah, I mean that that's right. But the, the one thing that did come across with the with the earlier people in the inquiry is the total dysfunctionality of the Boris Johnson government, and I think people have picked up on that. Not. I mean, of course, a lot of bad language, but also the role of Dominic Cummings, uh, the 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 way the the role of the of of uh, the permanent officials and how it all works. It is not a pretty picture, John, in terms of how to run a country. No, uh, it isn't. And I think if you do a comparative analysis, and actually, I have a PhD student who's doing exactly that about how COVID was managed in a range of European countries. Uh, I don't think Britain comes out of it very well, frankly. Um, All governments faced the issue that this was almost completely unprecedented in our lifetimes. But if you you look at the way in which um, 
people in the most senior offices in the UK government behaved, that was different to other governments. Um, and it, to me, just suggested a complete indifference that's there, obviously, in Boris Johnson's rhetoric about letting the virus rip, irrespective of what it was going to do to older people. And I thought it was interesting, a couple of days ago, he had his own language read back to him during the inquiry. And that was really the only point, I think, in his testimony where he looked deeply uncomfortable. Um, But to me, the big question is what comes out of this. And I'm afraid the precedents are not encouraging. If we look back at the Levinson inquiry, It's the most recent comparator that I can think of, which was set up to look at the ethics of the press. Ask yourself, did the behavior of tabloid newspapers really change subsequently? Did anything really change in terms of the culture and ethics? I don't think it did. And to me, this just looks like the usual sort of establishment whitewash that gives the impression that there's a real effort to learn the lessons from what happened here, I doubt that that's going to actually happen. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's not It's not going to change anything. In terms of COVID itself, not a lot has come out of it in, uh, to give us hope that if there's another pandemic, we're going to be better prepared for it. But it has highlighted, as I say, the, the bizarre nature of the Boris Johnson government, which probably, I think, is the final nail in Boris's coffin in terms of him coming back as leader of the Conservative Party. I'm sort of furious about the COVID inquiry because it shows how deeply unserious our political media class is. You know, what um, you know, Nigel said about what it's meant to do, you know, it's meant to work out how we can be better prepared for another pandemic so that you know hundreds of thousands of people don't die. You know, millions of people's livelihoods are, are are disrupted, and so on and so forth. And it hasn't done that. It has, fo- and I think you know the the barrister has been playing to the you know to the gallery, the gallery which is full of the most small minded, ridiculous journalists who are you know not covering it in a in a serious way, but in a who swore, who called, who what, rather than trying to look at. Why were we so unprepared? Using the kind of comparative data that you know John's PhD student is working on—that's what a you know a serious inquiry would look at. And then you would you you would only look at the kind of character flaws of the people in charge in order to strip them away from the structural things. Because the next time there's a pandemic, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings and so on and so forth—they're not going to be there. So their unique characters aren't relevant for things that we need to change is the underlying things are which are to do with nhs preparedness our ability to uh, to purchase things are, are are predicting what's going to happen but apart from that i i was at, as i said i was at prime minister's questions on on wednesday the i was expecting fireworks the only time that that things really started getting a little bit sort of uh, bubbling up in in the house was when the leader of the, the smp uh, brought up the subject of uh, Richie Sunak losing the next election to another supporter of Margaret Thatcher. Now, James, Keir Starmer referencing Margaret Thatcher was, even though he wasn't trying to say she was a great person or anything, like, it was a slightly bizarre thing to do, was it not? Starmer's entire strategy has been, uh, as leader, to signal to 
those that are really in power, I don't mean the government, I mean the, the sort of ruling class of the country, don't worry, things are safe with me, things won't change that much, I don't have a desire to change things very much. And it's only really in that context that you can understand the uh, the message to telegraph um, readers about, uh, you know, signaling that um, Thatcher is Thatcher is good, because it's not it it's not really for votes because telegraph readers, you know, there aren't very many of them, and they aren't going to vote Labour in uh, you know in in very in very large number uh, anyway, and it's also not like there's this great cohort of people in the country who love Margaret Thatcher but would vote Labour if Labour said that they also love Margaret. You know, that's that's it's it's not aimed at voters, and you know it's again trying to I think construct a row. I don't think they'll be that upset about the row that they had. You know, it was on the front page of the Mirror, criticizing it, and there was lots of criticism of it. I think it, it it's again not gesturing to voters, but gesturing to um, to newspaper editors and to the, the CEOs of big business and so on. You know, give us a chance. Let us take over this mess from the toys and, and run the show for you for a little bit. And for me, what's so, you know, as a as a Labour member and someone who wants a large amount of change in the country, what's so sad about it is it it, it reduces the Labour Party uh, to basically being in the position of of a, of a kid that's going to be put in one of those toy cars that you have outside supermarkets and, and, and motorway service stations where you put in a quid and you you get to drive the car like that and it doesn't move and some lights go off and on. You know, you get the illusion that you're in the driving seat being able to make change. But if all of your, if in order to get there, you said, we're not going to do anything different, we're not fundamentally going to alter anything, then you don't have the mandate to uh, the mandate to make the changes that we need. So the idea that, um, which is of course stoked up by actually you know, the the editors of the Telegraph and the other opinion authors of the Telegraph, that underneath Starmer's establishment mask is really lurking some uh, you know socialist campaigner for justice, is not the case. Even if it were, he wouldn't be able to do anything because if you come into office not having prepared anybody to do anything, then you don't then you don't have the capacity to make change. Yeah. Yeah, quite. And 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 so in a way also he's he's risking upsetting you know his key supporters in order to pander to people that may never support him anyway. Yes, although I don't yeah. think that's I don't think that's a big I mean Labour will win the next election. And Starmer's gamble in terms of winning is correct. Right? Nothing Labour does really matters because the, the, the government that is in power for what will be 14, 14 plus years, the overwhelming majority of people are worse off than when they came to, into office. And in those circumstances, it isn't really about what the opposition does for that government to lose office. The, you know, the Tories will lose office all of their own doing. You know, they've really, really managed. I mean, everybody can see it. Almost every aspect of the country is worse than it was when they came into to office. It's not just public services being cut. Our infrastructure, of course, people, you know, of course, people's pay, the cost of living, all of that is worse. And in those conditions, the, the opposition party can basically stand there, say as little as possible, and it will be handed the reins of power. The problem is yeah. you then can't fix anything. 
you know, what do they do when they get there? But Nigel, you would agree with that. There's no, I mean, there is no hope for the Conservative Party, even even with the old maxim, a week's a long time in politics, nothing is going to really substantially change for, for the Conservative government going into the next election. Um, well, I don't think you, you can ever say uh, say never. And James may be right. They'll go they'll go on uh, they'll go on late on the basis that something might come out of the ether, or indeed something goes wrong with Labour. That's that's always a possibility. Um, but no, if I was putting any any money on this, that the the Tories are finished this time round, and Labour will inherit a, a mess, John. And the mess is going to. They're not prepared for it, and it's going to take an awful lot of fixing. Yeah, to me, this is the tragedy of Britain's modern Labour Party. They get a go once every 20 years, and they never seem to have the courage of their conviction. I would go back to Blair and Brown, for example. I could never understand why they went to the lengths they went to to court the Mail and the Sun and the Tory press. I'm not sure if James will agree, but I go back to the 1992 general election, and I think it was so psychologically shocking for the Labour Party to lose that election when they had been 20 points ahead, that it almost conditioned Blair and Brown to be ultra-cautious about what they could pursue. We also have to add the counterfactual about what it a Labour Party led by John Smith might have done. But nevertheless, if it seems to me that um, if only Starmer had some conviction about what he stands for and about the kind of things that a Labour government has to do. But the big problem they face here, and I think this is where it's very different to 1997, because remember then the economy had been recovering from all of the terrible things uh, in 1992, 93, the ERM crisis, so on. So there have been three or four years of significant growth. That's not going to be the case here. The Labour Party is going to be faced with crises all over the place and uh, with this commitment not to increase spending very much so that the national debt won't go up um, to the extent that uh, it might and so on. So I think there's a whole range of things here that are very, very problematic. And Starmer doesn't look to me like somebody who has the conviction to chart a completely different course. And in that respect, I've mentioned the electoral system as well. If you go back to 2019, I mean, I think with all apologies to James, part of the reason Labour lost is that Corbyn was a hopeless politician. But if he had gone to the Liberal Democrats and done a deal with them to not stand in uh, constituencies where the Liberal Democrat candidate clearly was stronger, there were at least 100 seats that that combined Labour-Lib Dem entity could have picked up and they would have gained power. The same kind of thing is going to face Starmer, I think, in the future. Um, it's always the temptation to go it alone, to govern alone, rather than to try and fundamentally change the nature of British politics. And I, I'm not in any sense hopeful. I shared, I think, that view with James that Starmer is going to be anything more than a stopgap. Yeah, I think you're right there. And I mean, in terms of electoral strategy, yes, I'm in, in the Kensington constituency, which was Labour before the last election. Uh, they had a strong Lib Dem candidate here, and uh, Sam Guillaume, actually, and and the Lib Dems polled sufficiently well to put the Tories back in, in this seat. And, 
you know that it's a it's a difficult situation and and you're quite right that starmer is not particularly charismatic he is not a conviction politician i don't think he is ever going to be but my word we're not that well served with who we do have available to us are we i mean that's another question altogether as how we do come up with somebody who is going to be able to take the country out of the mess we're in I don't see it happening. Does anybody else see that person anywhere on the sidelines? Well, don't all talk at once. I think you've made the point, and I think we've nailed it. You've been listening to Right on the Nail with me, Chris Wright. Uh, thank you to all of our panellists, Professor John O'Brennan, James Schneider, and Nigel Nelson for joining me. If you've enjoyed the podcast and you haven't already done so, please leave a, a five-star rating or whatever on your podcast app. That would be really appreciated. The podcast was produced by Tom Platts and is published by New Thinking. Find out more at newthinking.com. And thanks for listening and catch you next time on Right on the Nails.